All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Illusion of Consensus podcast, hosted by myself, Ravarora, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. We uh, go back in between. Sometimes he's doing his solo episodes with various scientists. Sometimes we're doing episodes together, um, or I'm doing my own solo episodes, such as uh, the recent one um, with Rick Doblin of MAPS, the multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, talking about MDMA and psilocybin therapy for complex psychological conditions, where we're trying to go all over the map and explore our various interests, Jay and I. And uh, this podcast today, I'm excited to bring you Ethan Strauss from the House of Strauss Substack. Uh, Ethan, I met uh, at a wonderful dinner in San Francisco, hosted by the founders of Substack, Hamish, um, and uh, there was several people there. Jay was there, Lee Fong, Alex Berenson. Uh, and it was great to meet Ethan. And uh, at the time, we, we had a good exchange. And uh, we were recently talking about doing a podcast. So I'm, I'm excited for this. Uh, Ethan, thanks for coming on. This, this is why you can't trust these Zoomers. That that was a secret dinner. We weren't supposed to tell anybody we oh, were having right. it. And look, okay. look, already sharing it with the world, <laughs> just letting the world know about these secret meetings of the Substack luminaries, uh, putting us on the radar, right in the crosshairs. But uh, I forgive you for it, uh, for you were uh, a very serious uh, and trenchant interlocutor when I met you. So I'm glad to do this. Yeah, I wonder though. I might have to delete that part. We'll see. I don't want to. Pay, <laughs> I don't care. I don't want to piss off Hamish, right? Um, well, I don't care. Don't yeah. do it on account of me. Is all I yeah, would say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think. I think it should be fine. Um. Yeah, man. So House of Strauss Substack. We're part of the same sort of media revolution. We're writing about very different topics, but we have some shared interests. Um. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to Substack and a little bit about your journalistic career prior to that? Yeah. Um, so I used to be something called a beat writer, uh, which is somebody who follows a sports team around. And I would follow the Golden State Warriors basketball team around the country right as they just hit on this uh, just dynastic, incredible run. And so it was very much exhilarating, but exhausting. I was an adult, but I felt a little bit like that kid and almost famous following the band around. It just had that it had that sort of energy to it. it very, there's what this year kind is this? Of what year? This was, I started covering the Warriors officially as a beat writer in 2014. And then they won the championship in 2015. And not only won the championship, but became this Beatles-esque phenomenon uh, because the, the aesthetics of how they did it. And Steph Curry just translated as this star that people could not, could not get enough of and i just happened to be there i didn't do anything to um to realize it um and i i just happened to be johnny on the spot i was somebody who was was doing warriors articles for espn on a freelance basis as uh, early as probably 2010 and so um i had developed a track record and i was i was safe for them and I was doing it at a time when nobody really cared, but they had this blog network, and every now and again, maybe they would kick me a hundred dollars or whatnot for an article. And then when the Warriors blew up, I always analogize it to when you're hungry and you open up the pantry. I mean, what do you go with? You go with what's there. And uh, the Warriors blew up. ESPN was hungry for more Warriors content. They opened up the pantry, and you know, one potential pathway is you hire somebody 
really established and expensive and move them to the Bay Area, or you've developed this trust with this kid who's in his 20s, and he's not going to be very expensive, and you can go with that route. And so I was the beneficiary of, uh, of being there. And maybe things go in a totally different direction for me if the Warriors had just stayed bad forever, and they were bad. I was just sort of showing up as a blogger because there weren't too many people showing up. They were a very woebegone team. And I got a sense of what professional sports is like and how even if it's at the top of that profession, everything is just permeated with this sense of losing and humiliation. Um, and it's depressing. But for some reason, I wanted to just keep doing it. Around that time, I was actually writing for Salon.com before it went fully crazy. And I had worked my Salon. way up as an... Yeah, I'd, I'd worked my nice way up as an intern. It's yeah. crazy to think about. I, I did a, I did a podcast with Sarah Heppola, who's an editor there around those days of 2010, and we didn't know that it was going to be um, ground zero for the way media would be, and not a good way, um, and the way they would do clickbait, uh, the way they would be identitarian, and how that clickbait was shaped. We didn't know that we were on the ground floor of any of that. But I was a I was an intern, and I had this sort of choice at some point because I'd been given a promotion to be full time at Salon, and I decided to go with the sports. The sports was just intriguing. You were around show business, you were on the event level, it was cooler. And then the Warriors blow up, and then ESPN hires me to be a beat writer, and now I'm living out of a suitcase on the road, going to a hundred games a year, um, and just living in this perpetual state of movement will be maybe a little bit cut off from whatever is going on in the rest of the world. So that's, that's the origins of the whole thing. Did you have a family by the way, at that point? I had a wife. Uh, I did not have kids. It would be very difficult to do that kind of job. I was going to say, yeah, kids, <laughs> that wouldn't work. Yeah. Right. No, I, I got married in 2015. Um, right. As it was really going and it was, it was difficult. It was a very difficult job. Uh, because sometimes you're on a two-week road trip, sometimes a one-week road trip. You can't really plan things the same way you can with a lot of jobs, jobs of travel even, because you don't know if you're going to be on the road in April, May, June. Uh, you don't know, and it's all a little bit up in the air. So you're, it's like a carousel, the NBA is, and you're on it, and it's moving, and then when you're off it, you're off it. And right now I'm off of it. and I understand that the people I communicate to who are still on it are operating in just a fundamentally different reality that is very much anchored in the um in the exhilarating present. And mm. part of me misses that, but I altogether do not miss it. I, I think this is this is a lot better and, and suits me better. Right. Yeah, especially if you want to maintain a healthy relationship and have kids. I don't know how that would be possible. Right, like how many weeks of the year are you gone versus at home? Yeah, I, I'm sure. I mean, there have been beat writers with kids. I'm sure it's possible, but it, it has to be considered suboptimal. I mean, I, I would find myself having arguments with people that I didn't usually have on a long road trip just because of the lack of sleep. And then there was this other mm. strange aspect to it where it's the lack of sleep, but it's also it's this overstimuli because a basketball game 
is pretty much designed for somebody who is showing up for maybe one night a year. And yes, they're a season ticket holder, so maybe it's more than that. But it's this grabbing at your brain, overstimuli. You go to a game, there's music constantly. They're yelling at you constantly in between the breaks with different contests and eye candy. And if you're going to over a hundred of them, it starts to grind on you. And then you start combining it with this other weird thing, which is one of the wonderful things about the United States is it's such a vast country with such different types of places, but you start to feel scrambled. I remember I was on a five games and seven nights trip. So five basketball games, seven nights, and it went Los Angeles to Salt Lake City to Memphis to Minneapolis to New Orleans. And you just think about that. Wow. LA is a very different place from Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City is a very different place from Memphis. Then we go to Minneapolis. I remember it was zero degrees. I get, had trouble finding my way into my hotel. I felt like I was going to die out there. But then the next day I flew to New Orleans and it was 80 degrees. And so you're just at a fast pace, just speed running America, uh, which in many ways is really cool. And you learn a lot. And, but at the other, but I just don't think it's sustainable. Nobody wants to be a beat writer forever. I never met a beat writer who said, this is, this is the apogee of what I want. And I just want it to perpetuate. Mm. Yeah. It sounds fun for someone in my age. I mean, I'm not a sports journalist, but to me, that sounds actually quite appealing in a way like that, getting up and constantly being in flux, moving around from place to place and all the novelty, like, I know, oh. I, know I, I think Jerry Seinfeld has some joke about like, you know, you're in your 20s and you're just like looking around, look at me, look at me, look at me. And then you're like 30s, 40s, 50s. And you're just like, all right, I don't, I don't need to like say hi to everyone. I don't need to like go to every place and <laughs> do the biggest and the coolest and the most fun stuff and, you know, thrive off of lack of sleep. And then you move into a phase of wanting more structure, more foundation, you know, family values, which sounds exactly. like you might be more at that place than someone my age. No. He he has said a lot of interesting things about the show business lifestyle versus the lifestyle most people aspire to. Um, you know, he has that joke he tells about the Glen Allen Orchestra where they uh, the plane got grounded. They're on their way to some sort of concert. They're walking with their instruments. It's cold. It's snowing. They're freezing. And they look in and it's a family. It's warm. They've got some sort of delicious meal. The fireplace is crackling. It's a Norman Rockwell picturesque scene. And one of the musicians turns to the other and goes, Ugh, can you imagine living like that? And I might not completely capture the delivery or exactly what was said, paraphrasing, paraphrasing, but it's this idea of if you're in show business, you can't even envision being a normie. And you're you're not suited to being a normie and this is the life you chose and there was a little bit to that you do feel like when you're on the circuit you feel like a carny you know like the lifestyle i led was one where i go into any arena any basketball arena in america i don't know how many arenas there are because some arenas host two teams um at different times maybe there are 29 arenas I can just go Wait, in which there. Are, which arenas would host two teams? Was it, is it LA? Well, the, yeah, LA. And I mean, I guess that might be the only one now that I think about it. But okay. um, do, they that's sort their, of, do they change their paint every time 
different teams play? Like, I wonder how that works. Yeah, and they change the banners, and which banners are showing and why becomes this little stupid source of controversy. I wonder how how you would have to repaint the whole floor. There are time lapse. I don't know if they repaint it. I think it's just different wood that they use, but there are really cool time time lapse uh, photography scenes of how it's done. And the, the coolest one is when they change it from hockey ice uh to arena floorboards but um yeah it it was this cool feeling of being in a professional sort of cast or class that you you could just i could just go to any arena in america hit up the right person go to a game for free be you know be able to go around the arena anywhere i wanted see a bunch of people i knew any arena i went to in america i would see colleagues and acquaintances if not friends and we knew we were living a lifestyle that was outside of what the normie was doing we would go to work at around 4 to 5 p.m we would get off of work at midnight maybe you'd go out drinking because your adrenaline is just going because you finally just got done with the day and you feel a little bit like you're on that chef schedule and like what you said if you're in your 20s i mean that's that's not bad. That's pretty cool. And then you add this proximity to a lifestyle that people are interested in. And any wedding you go to, other guys at the wedding are going, oh, my God, this is the coolest job. But to what Jerry Seinfeld was saying, at a certain point, you know, unless you're oriented a particular way, it does get old and you want something different. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was it like interact so you i guess you got to know the golden state warriors team pretty well on an interpersonal level is that right or were you talking to a lot yeah. of the guys pretty frequently well what was oh, your yeah. sense of the the aura of the team and i guess maybe where it's at right now i, I think they still have the same manager the same coach yeah i believe and you're such uh, a soccer you're such a soccer fan call it a manager but yes they have the same coach yes <laughs> yeah gotcha and then uh, i wonder i haven't followed it closely if uh, any of the major players have left or how many of them are there. But I, I, I do ask maybe what your thoughts, like Golden State were killing it for a few seasons. And then I remember so 2018, 2019, 2020, when they, one of those years, they finished like dead last or close to it. Mm. That's yeah. right. I was, I was, I was very, I wasn't following it at the time, but I was wondering like, how, how does that work when you're like, you know, like the, the juggernaut of the league. And then a few years later, you're at the very, very bottom and what that, what that's like for team morale. Yeah, it was depressing to be around when they got bad. Um, I was still there at that time. Um, Which year was that? That was, uh, I think, 2019 to 2020. Um, Steph Curry had an injury that effectively ended his season, but they clearly were looking terrible. Um, and, you know, Clay Thompson had had an injury, and they were. it was almost good that Steph got hurt or was thought to be because they could at least get a good draft pick. But it was... Um, it was weird because they had just moved to this new building and everything had been building up to them moving um, to the Chase Center in San Francisco away from Oakland where they had all these memories. So they, they open up this big, shiny new building and um, building for you know, like, tra- like training facilities. Uh, no, no, the arena. Oh, you the know, arena. they they okay. yeah, they uh, they built um, they built this shiny arena in San Francisco, which was theoretically an impossible place to build in. But Mark Benioff of Salesforce uh, spotted them the land to do it. The reason he did that, and I asked him about it, he shrugged his shoulders and he said that he was sick of schlepping all the way down to San Jose whenever he wanted to see Elton John. So that's why 
massive multi-billion dollar deals get done apparently sometimes it's a very influential boomer just wants to see the rocket man um and right. suddenly they, they were really they, pre- they previously yeah. had their stadium they, in a different part of they the city they had it in Oakland across the bridge um okay. in a neighborhood that's quite dilapidated um oh, really? and they had these visions that they would they would upgrade they would go to San Francisco and um they would upgrade and they privately financed the stadium and has it worked out i don't know they won a championship in it after being really bad two years after being really bad they had this sort of one last run kind of feel and they won the championship which year um, is that? It's 2022. They won the 2022 championship. They did? They oh, did. Um, okay. This year was Denver Nuggets, right? Yes. So Denver Nuggets had the 2023. And now yeah. they're just kind of, they're clearly nearing the end of whatever they were. Um, they were at the peak of it when I was there. And uh, I say that like I'm taking credit when I was there. But they also, I mean, how do I even explain that the people aren't engaged in it? They became the source of a lot of angst and a lot of focus because they had the best team. They narrowly lost the championship, and they added maybe the second or third best player to the roster, and that just made people feel like this is too decadent. And it was. They were second or third the best. best. Kevin Durant. They added Kevin Durant mm. to their team. Um, it was very decadent. People felt like the NBA was no longer competitive because they were just so much better than everybody else. And it was fascinating to watch them because they sort of, they, they, they were great, but they didn't really seem to love it as much. And it just shows you that so much of your happiness is based on expectations. And if there are almost no victories to be had, even if they can be literally had, there's no doubt. So there's no credit that can be granted when you exceed expectations um, it can really impact morale. And that was certainly the case for Kevin Durant, who was quite happy the first year he won a championship, but eventually became quite miserable and uh, really? obviously wanted to leave the team and eventually did. And uh, Because of how well they were doing or because how lower the expectations it, were now? It didn't change the conversation about him. That was a big focus that he, I think, expected to join the Warriors, win a championship. Now he's won a championship and he has been stamped. He outplayed LeBron James in the finals, but it didn't change where he was and where he stacked up in the conversation. And I think that was one of the reasons that it was quite disappointing to him. And it's a little dangerous for me to talk about, though, because he gets he's, he's gotten offended when I've talked about his motivation and why he's done certain things. He, oh, really? Got quite angry at me in a press conference when I said that he was going to leave the Warriors. He eventually did leave the Warriors. Uh, But, you know, it it was just he was miserable. They were incredible and he was miserable. And it was this uh, somebody even wrote an article comparing the Douthit book about decadence to my book about the Kevin Durant Warriors and the end of the Kevin Durant Warriors because it was this strange feeling of um, having beaten the video game and not knowing where to go with it. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was a fascinating and, and, and look Durant at human went, psychology. Durant, Durant went to the Nets after? 
Durant went to the Nets. Um, that didn't seem to satiate him. It hasn't really worked for him. And now he's on the Suns. And he's sort of this man without a country when it comes to the NBA. And we'll just see we'll see how it all goes. But a lot of people theorize that his move to the Warriors effectively broke the NBA. It was something that should not have been allowed to happen. Um, and has derailed the sport ever since. I'm kind of an agnostic on that, but I can certainly see their point of Wait, view. Wait, why? What's the opinion on that one? Because there was a certain competitive balance and a certain order, and there were certain teams and brands mm-hmm. that people had an attachment to. And not only did it make the NBA anti-competitive for a few years, making certain people tune out, it accelerated this trade demand era, this I'm leaving my team era of players seeing their teams as these vessels for their ambitions rather than something they have equity in building and an emotional attachment to. And that overall has hurt the NBA, the sense that the players don't care about these teams, that they're going to just kind of sign on uh, to maybe help their status in a temporary way. So if they don't care, why should I care as a fan? At least that's the thinking from some. But anytime you have a big phenomenon, uh, a big event, it's a confluence of factors. You know, the NBA has about half the audience on big games, on nationally televised games and in finals games than it did about a decade ago. Um, wow. And you, you, you only get there with a variety of factors. And I've brought up a few of the factors, and you've probably been through this, where you bring up one factor in a multi-causal uh, scenario and somebody gets very offended and argues against that and acts as though that's the only factor. I brought up the political signaling as well as something that probably caused some NBA fans to tune the NBA out or to feel differently about the brand. And that was quite controversial. But it's a lot of factors, including the death of cable television and players not playing in games because of uh, what they call load management, where rest is now further emphasized. So Uh, You'll buy a ticket to a game expecting to see a star and he takes that game off. A lot of people don't like that. And uh, some of the factors pertaining to Kevin Durant that we're talking about right now, I think that's how you get to lose in half your audience. It's not just one thing. Mm. I just want to close the loop on the Warriors, their trajectory. Like, I'm very curious how a team can be at the top and then the season after be close to the bottom. Can you talk a bit about how that happened? How they they were so good and they fell so dramatically i mean i can talk about it but i actually don't think it's that interesting um i mean i the kevin durant um in the the finals they were you know probably going to win the finals if healthy because they had such a talent advantage he gets hurt he comes back he gets hurt in the playoffs he comes back in the finals he tears his achilles in a finals game um, and then in the last game of the season, they don't have Durant, but they still have a fighting shot at it. And Clay Thompson's playing amazing. He dunks the ball, he lands, and he tears his ACL. And so Durant is gone. He signs with another team. He couldn't even come back if he was healthy because of the injury. And then Clay Thompson's not playing, you know, that season. And then the Warriors have to make moves and reshuffle their roster to account for you know all of what's missing and then Steph Curry got hurt so 
uh, it's like the most basic answer is injuries. I mean, that's really what it is. They got injured, and then there wasn't much of a reason to try. And then there was all that exhaustion from having tried and tried and tried that, you know, you take a little bit of a gap year. You know, they had a little bit of a gap year that year before they started to rebuild. Yeah, I guess what's just so shocking is is because of all the injuries, they not only started losing a lot, but that they were close to the bottom of the league. Like that fall was so dramatic. I, I don't know how okay, nor- so here's normal the, that might be. Or, I'm, or I'm starting. I'm, so I'm okay. I'm realizing I'm starting to understand why, why this is interesting to you because you're a big soccer fan. Uh-huh. And so one of the reasons you're reacting to this this way, if I'm to, uh, if you would permit me to psychoanalyze you, is this, well, how do you fall to the bottom? How do you like, how does that happen? Well, it's because in, in soccer, you don't, you want to fight no matter where you are in the deck. You know, you uh-huh. want to, you don't want to get relegated. Uh, there's a, there's an aspect right. of pride. Yeah. Relegation. And yeah. NBA is more like, Ricky Bobby, Talladega Knights, if you're not first, you're last. NBA is, I mean, you don't want to, you know, losing, it sucks. You don't like losing, but you have a better chance of getting a great draft pick the worse you are. And so there's not a lot of shame in going from being the 10th worst team to being something closer to the absolute bottom. So, oh, I really? mean, I actually didn't know. Yeah. You have a better chance an, of getting a, a big draft pick. Yes, you do. And they've tweaked it a bit. So it's not even as much of a chance as it was in the past, but they call it tanking, uh, where you intentionally lose. And, you know, the San Antonio Spurs, for instance, were terrible last season. And that got them a 14% chance at the number one pick. You could say, well, that's not really, you know, a great chance at it. But the guy they got, uh, Victor uh, Wembyama, God, I'm pronouncing his name horribly because they actually spelled it wrong in the jersey. It was this whole thing. But he's this seven foot three, you know, incredibly most talented guy anybody's seen, French prospect, who's the most talented guy of this generation. And for even a 14% chance at a guy like that, I think it's worth it to tank. And even if you miss out on the number one pick, you're likely to get a great pick um, if you're the worst team. So there's an incentive. There's an incentive to be bad. So it's not all that surprising if a team goes from being the best and they get a bunch of injuries for them to shrug and go, okay, let's just be terrible. In fact, it happened with the aforementioned San Antonio Spurs. They had an injury-plagued year. They really let go of the rope intentionally. And then they drafted Tim Duncan, and they were great again. So it's it's something that happens. Mm. Are there other incentives to not try as hard? I mean, it's like, you can't get relegated. That's huge. I, I don't actually think about that difference. In yeah. soccer, you can get relegated. You move to a lower league. Um, but other than that and getting a higher draft pick, is there anything else that pushes in that direction? Well, money, you know, you don't... It's it's tricky, though, because the NBA does revenue sharing. And so if you don't spend a lot, you can make money while being bad. I think a lot of... There are a lot of bad incentives. Um, bad incentives lead to bad outcomes. Uh, the NBA, not all the incentives are aligned for everybody to be trying, and and that's that that's an issue. But yeah, they're they're the main incentive to be good is just that people are coming into your building and and want to watch, and you can negotiate a better local TV deal. Um, 
but maybe even those incentives aren't enough when you combine it with how they're starting to do revenue sharing. And they're just, the NBA is a, it's a tricky, it's an odd, it's an odd league. It's different from the other leagues in a lot of different respects. Um, and, you know, there, it has this, again, this aspect of if you're not first, you're last. There are only a few relevant NBA teams in any season. Only maybe two or three, some might say five, that could conceivably win the championship. So everybody else is just everybody else, and they're in the wilderness. And they're in something of an oblivion where it just doesn't seem to matter what they do so much. Fixing that problem, trying to make those teams interesting, that's a big challenge for the league. What do you make of the Lakers' fall and rise, like where they're at with LeBron James? What do you think of the future of LeBron James and LA Lakers? Yeah, LeBron, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, LeBron is doing things at his age and maintaining a standard of quality that is not just unprecedented, but it's beyond unprecedented. Um, At the same time, he doesn't feel like a particularly resonant athlete. And I think there are a few different reasons for that. I think when you move around from team to team to team, and LeBron has gone from the Cleveland Cavs to the Miami Heat, back to the Cavs, and now to LA, you do become, as I've said with Durant, something of a man without a country, where uh, it's not like Kobe. Kobe's got that just incredible resonance in Los Angeles from having been there since he was a teenager and having built up that that equity uh, with the fans. And you don't really have that. And then with LeBron, there's almost this overdetermined nature to it where he desperately wants to be considered the best and isn't altogether subtle about it. And as human beings, I think there's something to our psychology where we can see you want something we're more inclined to withhold it. Um, I saw a bit of that with Kevin Durant wanting something from people and people then withholding it. Uh, I remember LeBron won the 2020 championship in the bubble they'd constructed for COVID. People can debate whether or not that's real as a championship. And the first thing he said when they interviewed him was, I want my damn respect. And I don't know if that's really appealing to people, that sort of thing. Wait, and why is why was there a debate that that might not be a real championship? Because there were no fans present. They had constructed it in literally Disney World. Um, the circumstances around that time were absolutely crazy. We're talking about the summer and fall of 2020. Um, and guys just wanted to get out of there. Uh, and I, a game without fans, I don't think is really an NBA game, if we're honest. There were guys shooting much better than you would ever see them shoot in a playoff setting because really? it's just, it's not yeah, it's not as nerve-wracking. You're in an open gym, you know? It's like you, you see players practice and it's remarkable how many shots are going to hit in a row uh, versus what happens even when they're open because there's this aspect of adrenaline and you're going to feel different playing a game in front of 20,000 present people than playing a game in a gym and maybe you know that it's on TV but you don't it doesn't seem like a big high stakes situation they tried to replicate it with little uh pictures of fans and you know fans on screens but i mean it's not it it's not the same it's a frictionless 
frictionless environment. So some people would argue that it's a real championship. Some people would not. I'm not terribly interested in it, but um, LeBron is very much into trying to craft being bigger than Michael Jordan. And he has surpassed him, I guess, in, in certain uh, in, in certain categories, just in the cumulative stats, accumulation. But he'll never be Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's Michael Jordan. Nobody will ever be Michael Jordan. He was the biggest athlete in the world at the time of his apogee. You as a soccer fan might disagree, um, but he certainly was the biggest in the United States by far. At the moment, the United States was maybe at its peak in terms of cultural dominance in an era where it was feeling probably a lot better about itself than it currently does. And he was just cooler. Nobody was cooler than Michael Jordan. I know there's no stat for that, but there is just something about him versus a guy like LeBron who does weird stuff like pretending to read the autobiography of Malcolm X and um you know reading it in his underwear for the cameras and then a reporter asks him about it he obviously hasn't read a word of the book i think there's a lot of trying and grasping and they were trying to make uh, more than an athlete was a was a slogan of of lebron's and he's not really that guy he's not interested in politics or activism but there's a this sort of desperation to be better than this this ghost of the past and i hey by some measures maybe he's done it i don't know but i think a lot of people it's interesting that Michael Jordan's popularity correlates probably with the NBA's popularity doubling and LeBron's uh, career correlating more with the, uh, the interest in the league having or halving, however you would say that. And where do you think his future is? How do you think he'll do in the future? Do you think he'll stay at LA Lakers, retire there maybe in three, four years? Is he going to maybe decline? Uh... Is he going to start playing less? People, there have been rumors that maybe he goes back to the Cavs. I don't know. It's it's an odd thing. I'm not sure how it's all going to wrap up for him. It's beyond belief that he's still as good as he is right now. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. It's difficult to even envision what he would do beyond it. He is quite open about wanting to own an NBA team. Um but that's not really interesting to me. I think sometimes the athletes will conflate what's interesting to them with what's interesting to us, and they will trick a few media people along the way. And it's, I mean, I don't know. Magic Johnson owns a piece of teams and the Dodgers, and uh, I, it's like it's just not something like sometimes NBA players will do these stories on their investments, and it's just that's great. I mean, we expect rich guys to have some good investments, it's not interesting, but that is the big goal that is animating to him it's just not something i think people care about tremendously michael jordan owned the you know he owned the hornets he just sold them for three billion dollars and it's they were terrible but hey you know i guess that was a good investment for michael jordan Mm. yeah i just wonder from lebron's perspective if there's anything left to achieve at this point if there's anything else that he wants before it's it's game over for him I mean, you'd have to ask him. I think he wants another championship um, because who who wouldn't? And he wants whatever's going to put him above Michael Jordan. That that has been the focus. That is something that at I mean, sneaker companies are interesting. The way it operates is so odd because they're almost like 
they're they're like having multiple mega corporations within one mega corporation and michael jordan effectively built nike um he is arguably as important to nike if not more so than steve jobs was to apple but yet lebron i mean obviously an active player michael long retired represented somebody within nike trying to form an argument against michael jordan when lebron was saying more than an athlete and was pushing they were aggressively trying to push him as the new muhammad ali somebody who was into activism in part because they saw colin kaepernick get a lot of cultural cachet from kneeling and and being something of an activist and i know a lot of conservatives hate colin kaepernick but i would posit that kaepernick at least believed what he was doing and at the moment he did it was taking on risk when Kaepernick started kneeling and doing his protest against police violence and and everything else, it wasn't obvious that that would work out well for him. It seemed like it was just as, if not more probable, that he would simply be cast out of the league and never heard from again. So that he becomes this big, you know, famous guy from it, with uh, a lot of the fashionable people in society applauding him, and that was certainly something LeBron's camp and LeBron's team. And Lynn Merritt, uh, the executive at Nike, uh, who was pretty powerful and rose through the ranks along with LeBron and signed, signed LeBron, something they noticed and they started aggressively trying to present LeBron as this more than an athlete figure uh, who has political thoughts for all of us. And it really started to accelerate when, um, God, what's her name on Fox News? Laura Ingram said, shut up and dribble. Uh, you know, when LeBron was uh, politically pontificating, which was certainly a rude thing to say on the part of Laura Ingram, but it's just something that she says and then she moves on to the next segment. But it became this massive thing within the NBA and within sports of I'm not going to shut up and dribble. I am going to lead the youth. I'm going to lead. I matter too much. I matter too much to the youth. That was something LeBron said at some point. And he's just not that guy. He's not. It's not even an ideological difference. It's just there are people who are better spokespeople for their ideology, and there are people who are worse. Kaepernick, whatever one thinks of him, was much better at being that guy than LeBron. I think with LeBron, it just came off as phony and weird. I mentioned the Malcolm X thing, and it Mm -hmm. seemed like it was this derailment um, that took the NBA in that direction as well, where uh, more than an athlete, and I'm not going to shut up and dribble. It just became this kind of mantra during the Trump, the Trump years and the Trump era that I think the NBA has reached a point where it just wants to get away from and it wants to return to the basketball because it just didn't, it didn't really so much, um, it didn't really so much work out. Last thing I'll say on LeBron is that I'd be interested in seeing if his son Bronny, if if they could ever play together at the same time. That would be cool. I mean, I think it would be cool. Um, I don't know how good Bronny is. Uh, I think a lot of people have different opinions on that. But yeah, that's a goal that he has stated, that he would like to play with his son. Uh, Such a thing has happened in sports before. Ken Griffey Jr. and his father, Ken Griffey Sr., played together. Um, Is that that basketball? I don't know. That was that was baseball, oh, uh, okay. but basketball. It's kind of unimaginable given how long a basketball career is. But yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea how feasible yeah. that is. 
and what the calculus is. I know that there was a health issue uh, with Bronny James where right. I can't remember if he passed out or something serious sounding. I don't know. So, yeah, you know, that would yeah. be cool. Just don't know how feasible it is. Yeah. Um, to close the loop on NBA, is there anything um, particularly exciting right now or noteworthy on your radar? Any teams or players that um, you recommend watching out for or may have a real chance at winning the championship or defying the odds? Um, I find the Oklahoma City Thunder interesting. It seems like they have built they've built a team in this sort of moneyball-esque way. Um, they've got a ton of talent. They're very young and nobody knows quite how they're going to hold it together and they've done it again. They did it once before and this is just a new generation that they've done it with. Um, so I find I find them to be quite uh quite intriguing. Um that's they call it a league pass team. It's the service you pay for so you can get all the games of a team's on a national TV a lot. I think as a league pass team, they're quite interesting. And then the aforementioned uh Victor uh Wembyama, Wembyama, so bad at pronouncing it, but um a lot is riding on his shoulders. Uh and um there's just this freakish aspect to, to watching him. I saw him in Vegas and you've just never seen a human being shaped like this. who moves like that. So I think that from the next generation is, um, is interesting. I've always been more into that and seeing what people can grow into versus who's going to win the championship for whatever reason. I, I don't know why. Just, I like the, um, the unknown. Hmm. Yeah. I see uh, the Celtics and the Bucks are at the top of the Eastern Conference, Western Conference. You have Timberwolves, Thunder, Suns, Mavericks. I assume Suns still have Chris Paul. We'll see where he no. goes. Cause... Chris, oh, Chris, Paul is on, Chris, Chris Paul is on the Warriors right now. Oh, he is? Oh, wow. I'm, yeah. I'm clearly behind. Wow. Is he starting? <laughs> um, that's a topic of some controversy. Uh, kind of. Well, it's sort of, I don't know. I don't know by the time you post this. It's sort of up in the air. Um, but that was a big deal in preseason. Was it, is he going to start? And he said, yes. And, um, yeah, you know, he's still a player with some value. It would seem. Mm. Right. Now let's uh, shift towards you. So you were writing for the athletic. Um, how did you, and why did you migrate to Substack? Um, a confluence of factors. <coughs> I think, you know, there was the aforementioned terrible warrior season and then the pandemic hits and we hit, we were supposed to produce sports content, but there was no sports happening. And you start to look at, you start to look at what really matters to you and what you're interested in and what you want your life to be about. And it was hard to unsee sports kind of only mattering so much and how they got ripped away. And do you want, I, I just didn't want the rest of my life to be about that. I was already getting a bit burnt, uh, burnt out. Um, and I felt like we were just trying to get blood from a stone for month after month after month. And there was also this aspect of, um, I really liked the athletic. They treated me very well. Uh, my bosses were great. My coworkers were great, but a lot of the sort and, of, hyster- and by, the, by the way, the athletic is part of the New York times, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. That wasn't true then, but it is true now. Right. Um, how, how recent is that by the way? Uh, it was about a year ago, something like yeah. that. Right. Um, yeah. but 
so, but a lot of the hysterias of the era, I think, were just infecting all of media. And it, it felt quite constraining. And it felt as though if you wanted to say certain things, if you wanted to make certain observations, you had to run it by a bunch of people. And for good reason, in a way, because things would just become controversial if you were going against the uh, what you might call the illusion of consensus. Um, and one of the articles that did best for me was actually talking about the NBA loss of viewership and throwing out possible reasons and mentioning, yeah, I think some of the political signaling might have turned some people off. That's not the only reason. It's just one of them. Um, there was this explosive reaction to that. Uh, a lot of people saying not so nice things about me in the industry. Uh, and, but the interesting thing about it, when you're at the athletic, uh, you see subscriptions, um, it's subscription driven as a model, just like Substack, And it got a lot of subscriptions and that made me think it, a light bulb went off and I just thought, well, wait a second, maybe if I just choose the topic. And I write about what I'm interested in, because again, I, I love love my bosses, love my editors, but it, it was like an act of Congress to get that article through. And I'm complimenting them relative to other publications. I don't think I would be allowed to do that article at other publications. So they were better than you know they were better than most. But it's still an act of Congress to get something like that through. And I thought, okay, well, I'm a reasonable person, and. I should be able to just select my topic list. And it seems like there are, there's a lot out there that would resonate with people that you're just not even allowed to discuss. And maybe I should set up my own shop. And you know those outcomes, those factors, they led me to contacting The Athletic and saying, hey, I know I signed a three-year deal. Could you guys be nice enough to let me out of it? I want to pursue my own thing. They were nice enough to let me out of it. And I think they just wanted to make sure I wasn't going to ESPN or some competitor. And I started out at the Substack and I launched a very ambitious, for me, uh, essay called Nike's End of Men about how Nike's advertising had become weirdly anti-male, which is interesting and just exploring kind of an instance of how does woke capital happen? Everybody has their theories on it. Everybody argues about it. So it was sort of, let's just look at this one example drilling down on it, trying to figure it out. Um, and uh, that that article did really well. That was my first essay. Um, it got written up. It got excerpted in certain places. I think Tyler Cowen excerpted it, uh, Andrew Sullivan. And from there, I was just, I was off and running. Um, and it's a mix of cultural commentary like that. Occasionally something about the actual sports a lot of sports business behind the scenes machinations. And then a major market inefficiency for me is that the way NBA reporting is done is through agents who feed reporters uh, the story and everybody wants to break his story first, but that's an obvious conflict of interest. So I'll just say, this is how this is happening. This is why this is happening. There's a situation right now in the NBA where uh, at ESPN, their NBA section, nearly everybody who matters is represented by the player agency CAA. So you have these instances where the reporter is represented by the same agency as the player he's reporting on. And magically the reporting is just all glowing and highly protective of the player. 
I'll actually talk about that stuff. There's an omerta on discussing that in my industry. And uh, so that and some of the culture commentary constitutes the uh, market inefficiency with which I make my living. Mm. Wow. And how was that transition from the athletic to Substack? Were you, uh, was there any kind of trepidation or uncertainty or worry on your part about, am I going to be able to make a living? What kind of model do I have? You know, how much to charge per month, per year? Was there some kind of financial considerations that you and your wife went through? Like, is this going to work? What if it's not? Is there a backup plan? All of that, which is good sometimes. You should be terrified. You you make your best uh you make your best stuff when you're sort of scared. But the athletic uh thankfully uh gave me a pro deal, which gives you one year of salary. You get about fifteen percent of um the subscription earnings, and then it flips and there's no salary, but you keep about ninety percent of your earnings minus whatever taxes and fees. And so that gives you training wheels to get the thing off and running. So that was a perfect that was a perfect dynamic for me. And at least let me know that even if I was foregoing my three year contract with the athletic, I would be able to pay the mortgage for a year. Um but it was still hor- it was terrifying because if you fail, you're not yeah. just a financial failure. You realize that people don't really want to hear from you. And that's scary. It's scary to risk both. And that fear, I think, was an animating force and was galvanizing for me. So, you know, I would tell anybody in a similar situation, not that they shouldn't be afraid, but yes, you should be afraid. You should be afraid and you should let that fear do something to you. You know, I, I that's that's at least what it did for me. I I realized that hey, this is, you know, there's no second chance at this. When I launch, I've got to be coming with something. It's got to compel payment. It cannot be lazy. And you just, that's an understanding you have to have. Um, And I'm not saying that it, it will always work out when you have that understanding. But the other thing, I think it's important to be balanced with it. It can't just be, I'm terrified. I have to succeed. If I don't succeed, I'm going to jump off a bridge. Um, there was also the way that I made it okay for myself. I, I, I said, look, and if I fail and I realize that I can't do it on my own, then maybe that's just the lesson I needed to learn. And maybe I need to be part of an institution. Maybe I need to be doing something different, but there's only one way to find out and that's to go it alone. And I'm fortunate. I'm happy that it did work out. And were you successful kind of right away? I don't know if you... If you're able to share numbers or anything, but did you kind of rocket launch 5,000, 10,000 you know, subs or did, was it more like a slow burn or did it take a few weeks or months to get that big rocket launch? And, and I'm asking, by the way, because I have some experience when Jay and I launched our Substack in May of this year, um, we implemented some very powerful strategies to get that sort of rocket launch in the first, I would say the first actually week was very underwhelming because we were like, mm. oh shit, this is not going to work out, you know. It was like, oh, yeah. crap, we're not getting that much. And then we reached out to our network. We had Alex Berenson and Robert Malone and a couple other places uh, cross-post our Substack, And we had this pitch and this vision. And we, uh, we hired an artist to craft this illusion of consensus cover and really make it a, a significant brand with its own unique tone and voice um, and really figure out what we want to do, which topics you want to cover. 
not just COVID because COVID is, I mean, that's it's kind of boring long term, right? You want to expand out. So we wanted to cover censorship, free speech, as well as I'm very interested in psychedelics, psychedelic therapy mm. for PTSD, depression, end of life anxiety, um, and other mental health issues surrounding SSRIs and ADHD medications and why more and more young people are are increasingly mentally ill and suffering from these issues. So we had to really create a plan. And thankfully, we got some good promotion and a, a few viral articles on Twitter that did really well for us and a couple of big podcasts uh, that we did. Uh, Brett Weinstein, like Dark Horse, uh, Russell Brand, stuff like that. Uh, how is it like for you starting out in terms of promotion and generating revenue, all that? Yeah, um, I would analogize it to so it, it was immediately working, but I think maybe two days in, my annualized revenue at that moment was about thirty thousand dollars, which is a great return for two yeah. days. But I would analogize that to. It's like you're you're swimming laps and it's a great push off the wall. It's a great push off the wall to get that in 2 days. But if you stop moving, you're 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 kind of screwed. You can't really in the bay area live off that. So you need to keep yeah. going. Um also how were you able to get? So like so we got similarly so except it took us I'd say a week, 10 days, 2 weeks and then we got some promotions and then we hit like a big 30k, 40k thing. But how were you able to get that? Like, did you already have a significant um, readership at the athletic? Like were people, did people know you and they wanted to follow you or did you make an effort on Twitter or how were you able to get that big launch? Well, I think there, there was a built-in audience. There is an aspect of controversy um, that I was leaving the mainstream for this. And I don't, again, think that I say anything that controversial, but, it's a very narrow band of acceptability within within the mainstream so it's it's quite easy to seem like a heretic you know you don't even have to be a contrarian to be a heretic um so i think there's an aspect of that and then i think the essay you know the especially the nike's end of men i mean that one did really well then i had some others that did really well and i was just i was just chasing that but then you need to sort of you can't just run around with your hair on fire the whole time. You need to kind of reach an equilibrium, figure out who you are, figure out what you are. At a certain point, I added the podcast and that became a big part of what I do. But I'm still looking for ways to grow. I'm still, I mean, right now, I think it's become a challenge with the way uh, Elon Musk took over Twitter and has uh, accelerated their de-emphasis uh, de on uh the emphasis yeah the emphasis on links um yeah. that's made discoverability very difficult uh for yeah. articles um and i'm not one to just cry about it and whine about it i right now i'm looking and i'm going okay well what do i got to do you know this seems like this seems like a bit of a roadblock um what's a way what's a way to be more discoverable you know i haven't as of yet, started doing my podcast on YouTube. I want to start doing that because yeah, same here. I'm really, I'm really proud of what I've built this thing into, and I don't necessarily have a goal in mind, but I just don't want to stop. If that makes sense, I just want to feel, <laughs> I just want to feel like it's, I just want to feel like it's growing. I just want the growth, you know, mm -hmm. and um, 
But yeah, as to how did I maintain it, I think you just a lot of it is you just hard work and chasing what you're interested in. And if you're interested in something, it stands a chance of making somebody else interested in something. And you know, you don't even know what works sometimes. So there's a little bit of uh I, I'm I fear over optimization. So on the one hand, there's some A B testing. There's some okay, that worked, then that didn't work, and that informs your choices. But I'm also wary of having that dictate your choices because you've probably seen that happen. They call it audience capture, where people almost burn themselves out through optimization. And if I was to do a sports analogy, it'd be like if a pitcher, if his best pitch was a slider and he threw a slider every time, you can't do that. That's not a good idea. So I'm always tinkering and always looking for the right mix and uh, the right mix of maybe red meat and also some other things that, uh, that, that make for an entertaining website. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We also ran into that issue when we launched in May is that we were not discoverable on Twitter and our tweets were not getting a lot of views. And, you know, Jay has like 500, 600 K followers and it still wasn't doing that well. So we had to kind of think outside the box and not rely on Twitter as much, but really utilize the inbuilt features in Substack to promote and to share content on notes and chats, those new features that they've they've upgraded to. Um, and then from there, you know, we had our initial big launch. And then I think our biggest bumps in terms of subscriber count and revenue and all of it came from, I guess, a handful of big articles. Um, like, you know, we launched in May and then I think end of May, we finally got that rocket launch start. And then, you know, one big article in June. And I think Jay with the Missouri versus Biden stuff, that was like another bump in that case. And then I would say since August, we've been a bit stagnant. Um, there hasn't been as much growth. So we're, we're trying to be creative and figure out more and more ways to innovate. We're going to be interviewing presidential candidates, which is coming up. We got Vivek Ramaswamy next week. Um, I mean, that, that will certainly, I, I'm sorry to interject, but I just, I should mention one of the things that I did that helped me was I, I call it the model where I try to hold myself Thanksgiving week accepted, but I try to hold myself, uh, to two articles and two podcasts with narrations of the articles and narrations are becoming a bigger thing for me. Um, and I've realized that if you can kind of hit a certain standard of quantity while maintaining quality, the rest can take care of itself. But mm. yeah, I whatever you've learned discoverability wise, I'm I'm interested in it as well. It's uh you know, in a way I like the new Twitter. Now we call it X. I like it better than the past because there are just fewer of those mimetic hysterias that leak into institutions. Um you know, now you see more of those starting on TikTok, but there's less of that now on X. But the downside, it's one of these things where as a consumer, I like it better, but as a producer, it's way worse. And it, it seems as though growth is no longer guaranteed. Now we're in an era of trying to figure it all out again. Mm. How did you get big bumps or uh, rises in your audience after that initial launch? Was Was it articles like every now and then, like some article gets a lot of traction, people are sharing it, and then subscriber count and paid subs rises? Or is there anything else that you found that has been really conducive to growing your your publication? A lot of it was talking honestly about the top news breaker 
at ESPN NBA, um, you know, makes millions of dollars. Adrian Wojnarowski, um, because what he does is quite transactional, not altogether subtle, yet nobody ever talks about the dynamics. So I felt quite liberated to do so. I had a weird history with him where when he was brought into ESPN, I got fired along with some other people that he wasn't perhaps all that fond of. And so it wasn't the feeling of having an axe to grind. It was more a feeling of he already doesn't like me and doesn't trust me. And so I lose nothing by talking honestly about the situation and saying he is represented by creative artists agency. And he is often reporting on people also represented by this agency in a way that is obviously protective of them. Um, and this is just all out in the open, but nobody's connecting the dots. Um, it's not a conspiracy theory. You can just see it. It's pretty obvious. And there were a few stories that were not exactly flattering to, uh, to that way of doing business. And it brings up all these other more interesting questions than the guy himself, because who cares, but it's more, okay, then why is this the way, why is this the way things are done now? Why is ESPN? What do they care if you've got a story up on Twitter that beats some other guy by a few seconds, if you're completely, completely orienting your entire content operation around that, around not stepping on certain toes, around not offending certain people because you need to break the story first. So that was this rich vein of content where it was funny. You wouldn't see too many people in my industry sharing it or retweeting it because they wouldn't want to offend him or they wouldn't want to offend ESPN. But those were big ones where it would just return all these subs because secretly people in the industry really wanted to know, in addition to a lot of fans who wanted to know what, what was up behind the curtain and why their news was the way it was. So I think that was something later on where those articles did really well. And I had to resist the temptation to uh, make my site the weekly Wojnarowski, considering how profitable uh, how profitable those articles were. I mean, one of them netted $40,000 in annualized uh, revenue in one day. Um, Holy now a lot of that, oh, that but a lot of, um, that's just people wanted to read it. Yeah. <laughs> people people oh, were interested. It was, paid, it was a paid article. It was a, yeah, it was a paid article. It was a paywalled article. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, you know, annualized for those who don't know, that's like, if they conti- if everybody continued paying you in perpetuity for the year, that's how much of a bump it would be. But a lot of yeah. people sign up for a monthly subscription and then bow out, so it doesn't actually yeah. turn into the forty thousand. But it was just this: whoa, that's a big, that's a big haul. Just talking about, uh, you know, whatever the gamer gate would be for NBA journalism. Mm. And you mentioned having a a regimen of writing. You said two articles a week, two podcasts a week. I personally just temperamentally struggle with discipline. I'm a very like ADHD scatterbrain, like all over the place and perfectionist, you know, highly creative person that anything I write, it just has to be perfect. It has to break free from ideological boundaries. It has to say something fresh and counter the mainstream narrative and, you know, be just the, the perfect dissident contrarian, you know, mm. just transcendent level of writing which it's you know when you place that high of a bar it can be hard to get started sometimes but i'm never in shortage of ideas but i do have a hard time 
maintaining that schedule. So like sometimes I'll go weeks. Like now it's been actually, I think two, three weeks. I haven't written anything yet. Um, I've been busy doing podcasting, but I do, I do find that's a bit of a struggle with the Substack game. And I, I guess this just differs from person to person. Like for me, it's hard to be my own boss because I, I kind of need someone to, to stay accountable to and to have yeah. someone say like, oh, like we need this done in a week, we need this done in four days and this thing's going to be done in, in a month. Have you found that to be a struggle at all, especially with family life or are you pretty good oh, at yeah. maintaining discipline? No, I, it's a struggle and uh, maintaining discipline is a struggle. Uh, and I certainly relate to what you're talking about where you want to choose your words carefully i think sometimes when you're talking about things that are for lack of a better term contrarian you know that's a loaded term you know people say that they sometimes mean that you're contriving what you're saying but if you're saying something that's outside the consensus i do think there's this added pressure to not come off looking silly or to give somebody an easy target because you were thoughtless with how you conveyed something or you didn't fact check something all of this, I think, is um, a particular kind of pressure, and I try to, I try to um, maintain that that schedule so at least I know what I have to do going into it, and I don't let that pressure build up to try to be a perfectionist. I think it gets, if you go in not knowing how much you're going to produce, then, in a weird way, it can almost feel like more work. Um, now I feel relaxed. If I, if I write an article, I go, okay, now I have one more to go. And I write that second article. I feel like, okay, I'm done with my articles for the week. If I go into a week feeling like I got to do something big and I've got to frame it um, in a most amazing way, then I might sit around, I might sort of wrestle with it. And I won't have that sort of focus yeah. of, you know, if you know that, okay, I got to do article number one. I got to find my topic. I got to start thinking about this at least on Sunday night. I don't want to just walk into Monday not having any sort of idea where I'm going to go with things. It's just sort of harder. So I think sometimes structure brings freedom. And yes. I think I work very hard, but it doesn't feel like I work harder now than before I came up with my model. Mm. And are you are you working? I know we talked a little bit before we started. Uh, are you working certain days over others, like taking weekends off, or how do you build yeah, vacation time or family time? Weekends are really hard. I mean, right now, um, <laughs> I just got a text. The first was my my five year old vacuuming my fourteen month old, um, and <laughs> my with an additional text from my wife. You coming home? Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so yeah. it's uh weekends are difficult. You try to do what you can do at night, but it's, you know, it's it's not so easy. I, the good thing though is the beauty of not doing my old job is I can at least be where I want to be with a lot of uh you know, with a lot of choice, with a lot of autonomy. Um versus I used to have to go to practices. I used to have to drive to San Francisco to do it. I used to have to be at games. I used to have to travel. You can't choose. So in a way, I work harder than I ever did before, but I feel like I have more time for my family than I ever had before, just because I'm the boss of myself and I can choose what to do and when I want to do it. So, um, but it's not easy. No, I would be lying if I said it was easy. It's a, it's a constant challenge. Yeah. And obviously when you're working, you're staying at home or I know you mentioned you're at an office. 
Um, that I mean, that's one way of getting around some of that being at home all yeah. day. Something that I've had to think about. Like I'm 22, Substack doing pretty well and long term. Like love what I'm doing. I want to keep up this brand, but I'm also someone that likes collaboration, likes doing things in person and meeting people. And sometimes it can get a little isolating and you know, just being by yourself, you know, in your basement on your laptop all day. Um, obviously, oh, yeah. if, you know, you have young kids. I, I'm living with my parents and I got younger siblings, which is fine. But that is something I need to, I guess, think about. And what what every writer has to think about, especially on Substack, is when you're, you know, by yourself or if you have a couple of people on your team. I have Jay, you have an editor and a producer. Um, How is that uh, lifestyle going to look like in the long term in terms of getting out? Like, are you, are you going to do reporting in person or what's that schedule going to be like? I mean. That's one thing I miss a lot about high school is you have to show up every morning at mm. 8 a.m. That's kind of my last reference of being part of an institution is you have to be there. Even if you had a late night last night, you still got to get up and do your yeah. shit. And there's there's people holding you accountable to that. Whereas when you're independent on Substack, you don't necessarily have that benefit of relying on the institution. Do you have any thoughts on sort of pros versus cons of being part of yeah. An institution and now being your own independent platform. The biggest con as I see it is I can't go to anybody for vacation time. Um if I go on a vacation, I can choose any time to go on vacation, but it's just money out of my pocket. Um and my readers and listeners being frustrated. That's all that's happening. It's not like when I was working for an institution and I go, okay, well, I can take these few weeks and I can go to Hawaii and I don't even have to think about work. Um, and my bottom line doesn't change. That's over. And similar with things like uh, paternity leave, um, that sort of thing just doesn't exist uh, when you're working for yourself. So that's the biggest downside. Now, as far as social isolation, um yeah i there might be some of that i love my neighborhood i love the town i live in and when i walk around i see people uh i you know if i if i step outside this office on most days i walk around i'll see people i know i'll say hi so i feel anchored i feel connected mm. um you know it's not really as much of a problem i wish i could do more to go to these sorts of dinners um you know that's the i wish i could do that more um and you know the challenge that's just the challenge it's just the nature of it when you've got young children you know when they get a little older it's a little easier but you're effectively making a sacrifice in their earlier years where you just cannot be you can't do some of what you want to do socially and that has nothing to do with what institution i'm working for i think that's just the nature of being a parent mm. do you ever run out of ideas or are you always you always got ideas uh, it's a good question. Um, it's funny. I think having the second kid shifted me from the problem of, oh my God, I don't have enough ideas to, oh my God, I have more ideas than I have bandwidth. And so, um, and sometimes some weeks it's no ideas, but the bandwidth issue is more the issue because like you, I don't want it to ever be bad. And if I do something, there's not the proper amount of bandwidth to it. There's not the proper amount of energy to it. Then it's going to not be very good. And I think the margin between something that works and is high quality, it, that margin between low quality and a failure is very small. 
So um, that's more the concern. But yeah, some weeks just doesn't, it just doesn't really manifest. And I think what's good for me at least is then I can kind of take a step back and go, maybe I should post something lighter. You know, maybe if it's not really, if I don't have like the big thing that I want to have this week, my readers want something. They want content. They just want it to be good. Maybe I can talk about a topic that isn't so controversial, but is just sort of interesting or particular to my life. And that's what I'll draw off if it seems like uh, the, you know, the big idea isn't readily available. And then through being consistent and um, you'll eventually, you'll eventually land on some of those bigger ideas. Mm. And, and do you have a particular regimen for writing? So you, you already mentioned how much you're producing, taking weekends off. Is it, do you have a kind of a schedule? Again, being your own boss, this is going to be a unique challenge, but do you have a schedule for when an article gets published? So like what days or what hours, like mornings, afternoons, or is it kind of all over the place? Cause you, you know, you got kids and. Yeah, it's, I wish I, it, it would be cool to have a schedule. Um, more so writing at night and, um, you know, I think I'm definitely more of a writing at night person. And then often the next day is when I can kind of clean it up and revisit it in the daytime. But like the meat of it, the getting the ball rolling, um, that's going to, that's going to generally happen in the wee hours, which might not be the healthiest, but generally writers write either late at night or early in the morning. I wish I could be an early morning writer. I think that helps, that, that would be a healthier lifestyle. But you know, I, I like sleeping in the same bed as my wife. And if I had an alarm go off at, at 4 a.m. every day, I think that would be not great for her. So ultimately, you got to choose. And uh, I've chosen the wee hours. Mm. Right. And, and how are you liking you know the Substack model in general? I mean, like how, how's it working out for you? Do you see this as a sustainable path forward for at least several more years? Is there anything that hasn't met your expectations or other surprises along the way? of getting into this kind of work? I mean, it sounds so boring, but the main disappointment is what Elon did to the links. That's the main thing yeah. that's been frustrating because I miss, yeah. not just for myself, but I miss viral articles. You almost never see viral yeah. articles anymore. Well, yes, Vi there's, there's some ways of getting around it. And I, you know, I, I have had a couple of viral Substack ones. Usually if you put the link in like the second yeah. or third tweet, do a screenshot in the first Michael Schellenberger is really good at this, by the way. Michael Schellenberger yeah. does screenshots of the public articles and then links to it later on. And those, like, is a very high rate of those getting at least, cool. you know, several thousand likes and whatnot. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna start doing that more often. Um, yeah. But I'm talking about in general, though. I just see fewer. There used to be big viral articles and that other people would do that I would see. And that's mm. kind of... That's kind of ended. So that's a bit of a disappointment. I hope Substack can rebuild their own version of that um, because I miss that being part of the culture. But I mean, other than that, I think things have met my expectations. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm just, I have an immense amount of gratitude to my subscribers, uh, my customers for allowing me to do this. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where I'm going to take it, but this is maybe the first job that I've ever had where I could see myself doing it for another 20 years, um, mm -hmm. if I'm lucky. So I'm, I'm very, I'm quite happy doing this. And you sense that freedom 
as opposed to that the constrictions when you were at the athletic do you feel well, do you feel and appreciate a lot of that freedom that you have now to kind of like kind of do whatever you want in a way like yeah. obviously you don't want to surprise your readers too much but theoretically no. if, if you really got into some other like political or psychological or even like spiritual topic it's like, just got to be you, you could go it, there if you wanted to it, it's just got to be good i mean this is the thing with audience capture is a fear and people being so anxious about oh my god you know is this person a grifter or whatever are they just chasing this incentive it's just look just make what you're doing good believe what you're saying put thought behind it um i i tell myself that i'm sure certain topics i've approached or the way i've approached them have driven away some subscribers but in the aggregate on balance you're going to win if it's good and I always think about trying to pass what I call the mom test uh, for, for my own mom, because she said, you know, don't worry about what some people might flip out about. You should look at it. Would a reasonable person find this reasonable? You know, that's the test you should be trying to pass. We all know how certain reasonable things you can say will get reacted to as though you just said the most insane thing. We see yeah. it happen to people all the time. I, I know I'm supposed to hate Barry Weiss for some reason. No one's quite <laughs> articulated why. I know I'm supposed to hate J.K. Rowling for some reason. Yeah, and, Nobody's quite excerpted the exact... Joe, Rog Joe Rogan. Yeah. Let's go on and on. Yeah. yeah, nobody's quite excerpted exactly why I'm supposed to. Um, but, you know, when you're whenever you're doing what you're doing, just, okay, look at it from the perspective of... A reasonable person reading this, not hearing about this from a crazy person who's trying to defame you, would they find this to be reasonable? That's the test I'm trying to pass. That's the mark I'm trying to hit. And as long as you go about it according to that sensibility of make it good, make it well-argued, and then don't worry about the rest. Don't worry about it. That's that's how I try to approach it. Mm, interesting. Before I get to the last question, this other thought came up. How do you consume news? Do you have a particular plan or particular outlets or some kind of roundup that you read? Or do you go on Twitter and get your articles there? Or how do you go about getting your information? God, it's such a good question. How do you consume news? Because it doesn't feel as much like there's a place to do it. Twitter used to be, but also in a way that I mean, that's maybe not the healthiest way to absorb it. I really think I'm at the point where I used to have a routine and I used to have these blogs I would look at, but now I really rely on my group chats. And you can say that's a bubble, but my group chats are filled with really smart people. Um, and so I'm like not sure there's a better journalists? way. Sports journalists? No, I, I mean, I have group chats that I'm in with sports journalists, but I have group chats that I'm in with people who do other stuff um, and that are journalists in other capacities. And so that's, that's become the first thing I check after I wake up. If I'm, you know, on my phone is my group chats and, you know, then, you know, you sort of, yeah, I, I think it's in, in a way it sounds lazy, but it's sort of been selected for me in that way. I have a New York Times subscription. I think that um, obviously uh, we could talk about their flaws, and th there are many. But when it comes to 
some of the big mainstream publications. I think it's a superior publication to the Washington Post. I think the Washington Post is overall terrible um, and is completely floating on its cachet. LA Times, horrible. Uh, San Francisco Chronicle, barely a paper. I know some people why, I know my why write, LA but... Times or Washington Post in your in your opinion. What's the last I mean, what's the last great article uh the LA Times has done that you could name? Or Washington Post. Washington Post, I mean look, I like certain op ed people they have. I don't want to defame them, but I just it it, it seems as it's hard to critic criticize the absence of something. Um the Washington Post just doesn't you know, they were bought by the richest man in the world. Um, speaking of conflicts of interest, I mean, it's hard to talk about uh, the economy, the political economy, everything else without talking about Bezos. But and and it just seemed like they were a thinner version of what the New York Times was, and it seemed like they got put too much on tilt. They got too ideological. When you're telling me democracy dies in darkness, that's a big claim. There, that's a little bit. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's a little sanctimonious there, you know, just give me the facts. Don't try to make me, don't try to beat me over the head with your point of view of who the bad guys and the good guys are. I recently wrote about how they went after Dave Portnoy of Barstool um, <laughs> and how that went for them in a way that I think made them look quite silly. And that doesn't mean that Portnoy is without his flaws, but it just seems as though they became quite idea uh, ideological to the detriment of their quality, and they just don't have as much. They just don't have as much quality um, and you know journalistic resources. They should have more resources, but they don't. The New York Times does. So that's just my take. Other people could disagree. That's my my perspective on the publications. Is that I need to have a New York Times subscription. I don't need to have a Washington Post subscription. I don't need an LA Times subscription. I don't need a Chronicle subscription. That's just where I'm at. Mm -hmm. There's also Wall Street Journal. I, I subscribe I have, to that one. I, I have a Wall Street Journal subscription. I do. It, it's yeah. expensive as hell, but they'll come out with necessary articles. And so I have one. Yeah. Lastly, so this is one thing I, I ask other people on Substack about is like, in the wake of 2020, George Floyd, COVID, a lot of the gender stuff, there's even been some interesting data on just how often terms like racist or transphobic or homophobic get used. It's like skyrocketed. And a lot of newsrooms have catered to very particular niche ideological and often identitarian issues. Um, and that's forced the Andrew Sullivan's, the Barry Weiss's, the Glenn Greenwald's, Matt Taibbi's, and on and on goes to come to Substack. Um, I, I have a bit of my own history. Many people who listen to this podcast know uh, during COVID, it became increasingly difficult to criticize Pfizer, Moderna, FDA, CDC. Those are kind of the sacred cows that you could not touch at all. Otherwise, you're immediately anti-vaxxer, science denier, whatever. Jay Bhattacharya knows this as painfully as anyone else, being a fringe epidemiologist, as they said. Um but what's and so what's your sense of the future of media with all this division and all this um, th this mass migration that we saw for many people who went towards Substack and now you have individual authors like Alex Berenson and Andrew Sullivan and Matt Taibbi making like one point five two million dollars a year net revenue 
on their own platforms and increasingly many, many writers like myself, younger ones, um, innovating and creating their own platforms on Substack as individual writers. And there's, there's been a, there's been a bit of this, um, I wouldn't say crisis, but, um, I don't know if we've gotten to the peak yet of like people are subscribing to so many different Substacks, and I've, I've, I've heard a little bit about this and I've, I've, I've encountered this a bit as well as a reader of like, I'm already subscribed to like four Substacks, or mm. probably way, way more than that. I'm probably subscribed to maybe 15, 20. And it's like, all right, Oh, now this guy's joining Substack and this guy, and who, who do I pay for? And who am I going to be supportive of? How do you, how do you see the future with um, mainstream media becoming increasingly um, divided and less and less relevant in many cases and people joining Substack and having their own individual publications? Like, is there going to be um, a struggle for finding the right platforms or uh, making sense of, of many complicated topics when there's seven different writers covering the same different thing and you no longer can rely on New York Times or WAPO for a particular issue, but now you've got seven different substacks that you're following with their own takes. How do you see the future of media with the, the newsletter age? It's a big question. Um, yeah, obviously, there's a demand out there for something of a bundling. Um, I'm not smart enough to dictate how that might go. But I think certain people might be well positioned to create the next big publication if they got a bunch of us together and there was enough investment behind it. I could see such a thing happening. But that's all dependent on the actions of a few individuals. So it's difficult to predict uh, predict that kind of thing happening. Um, I mean, I think it's going to be challenging. It's challenging to differentiate yourself, to make something that is different from what other people are making that, that commands a price. Um, it was challenging before, and it will continue to be challenging. Perhaps it will be even more challenging. Um, but I don't know how we rebuild the sense-making institutions. It seems like we need them. It seems like we just can't depend on the public to be able to sort out through a bunch of different individual substacks and come to some sort of realization of what the reality is. It seems like we do benefit from having a respected monocultural uh, kind of uh, legacy um, institution that can do a good job. And there have been very various arguments as to whether the media is, is good or bad. I mean, the arguments have made that they're actually pretty good except for a few different issues you know on race and gender and i think you would argue on uh the on, on the covid you could throw that onto the pile but i mean that's a that's quite the exception that's quite the carve out i mean these are some pretty big issues that mm -hmm. we're regarding them as totally crazy on um i think there's a demand out there for being rigorous I think there's a demand out there for being dispassionate um, and you're seeing that demand get filled. And I, I think that, you know, people didn't stop wanting that sort of thing. I think a lot of people stopped writing. People still want to read. Um, I, I mean, I'm not giving you a good answer. I mean, the short answer to your question is I have no idea where any of it is heading. I think it's good. 
that we as individuals have found our pockets of freedom to say what we want to say, but it obviously doesn't solve a lot of the issues out there. But hopefully it's a start. I think by demonstrating proof of concept that, I don't know, I'll throw a random name out there, that Jesse Single isn't the most hated man in the universe and he's actually a journalist that people will pay to read the work of, um, it opens up legitimacy of certain arguments to actually get reabsorbed back into some of these institutions that I do think, whatever their failings, I do think the New York Times is moderated. I do think it's a more reasonable place than it was three years ago. So um, hopefully, at least in the short term, the individual actors can work as a bit of a moderating force through their own success, um, along with uh, a moderating force on the on the bigger institutions by showing them what works and what's what's resonant. Um, that's the hope, anyway. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, and I I wonder when, if at all, we'll reach that peak of people have subscribed to enough. And there's, you know, there's not much more room for people to, uh, except for very extremely compelling voices to come join Substack and expect to earn a, a massive revenue and to do well for themselves. Similar with podcasts, right? Everyone's got a podcast. It's very difficult now to start a podcast um, unless you have a really unique idea and a unique perspective that you think people will subscribe to because there's just so much. Like I, I honestly can't listen to even half the stuff that I want to listen to. Like I've got queued up like, seven different Joe Rogan podcasts, a few different with Glenn Greenwald and Jordan Peterson, a couple of the Sam Harris. Like there's like so much and I just can't, there's Andrew Huberman for all the health and fitness stuff. It's like, Oh man, like I got so much to listen to and I can't listen to all of it at all. Um, so I, I wonder if we'll reach a point where um, there's not much more room for individual voices to come in and make a big impact. Yeah. I, I, to what you're saying, there is this bandwidth problem of the consumer because there's so much, but it's also a good argument for why charging for content makes sense because people will say, oh, I'm not going to pay for that. I'm not going to pay for that. I'm not going to pay for that. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about anybody making content that's paywalled. And I, I think the response would be, well, what's more valuable than your time? You know, You only have so much of your time when it comes to absorbing content. Uh, personally, I will pay to get the best possible stuff into my ears um, because I only have so much time, so much bandwidth. It's all paid to do it. And uh, hopefully that's an argument that uh, is persuasive to some people. Mm. All right. Well, uh, before we go, um, is there anything you want to add about uh, upcoming content or things to watch out for or any big stories in the sports world or outside of it that you're focused on? Anything for uh, readers to uh, pay attention to? There's an interesting one that I should have coming out uh, about the collision, the collision uh, between, how do I even frame this without talking about what I'm going to be talking about? Uh, there's something that was interesting that happened about, uh, in regards to the deal. This is probably going to yep. come out Tuesday, Wednesday for us. Uh, so in a couple okay. of days. Yeah, so. Okay. <laughs> so potentially something on a collision between the BLM movement, uh, the October 7th attack and something that happened within the NBA world. So I'll just say that. Mm. Wow. That's interesting. I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> there you go. It's a tease. I'm, I'm definitely going to pay attention to that one. Uh, all right, man. Uh, enjoy talking to you. 
um, especially as someone, you know, still learning the tricks of the game and making a name for himself. It was cool to, to chat with you and learn about your process and what it's like living in uh, Substack land and how the transition's been for you. Um, it's, it's been a pleasure. So thanks for coming on. And uh, I, I encourage people to subscribe to House of Strauss. We'll, we'll, we'll chat once we're done this. If there's any kind of call to action, we can forward to readers uh, when, I, when we put out this, uh, this podcast. We usually have a lengthy description and a, and a highlighted transcript where uh, we can add anything um, for readers to uh, to grab their attention. But uh, highly recommend subscribing to your stack. We really enjoy some of the articles, the, the recent Thanksgiving one you mentioned. Um, so keep up the great work, and uh, it was great talking to you. Great talking to you as well. Thank you.